So good morning, and I just want to remind you of where we've been coming from since the beginning of January, in case you're forget or you're unfamiliar, or like good reminders. But uh, we've had a vision for the new year, and the vision for the new year has been simply that as Genesis House uh, believers, we were striving for the top this year. We're striving to learn as much of the truth of God's word that we can. We're striving to walk in obedience to the truth that we learn. And we're striving to operate and learn how to walk in the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to be talking about prayer. And I suppose you could add a second P to the top and put prayer as the fourth component. But the prayer is extremely important for where we're headed based on our, for some reason, the PowerPoint got messed up. I don't know how that happened. There's a missing component. But anyway, there's an internally focused church on the left and an externally focused church on the right. It's supposed to be. And uh, we were looking to be as healthy internally as possible through the preaching of the word and through prayer and through um, healing in all sorts of different ways from emotional to spiritual to physical, whatever the Lord has for us in store for us. And also to become an externally focused church where we seek to uh, reach the lost in our community and the different ways in which we can do that. Well, obviously, prayer is the foundation behind the internal and external focus of our church. We want to ask the Lord to go ahead of us and pave a way and to be a trailblazer before we do anything and act in any way. But there are six kinds of prayer that we can think of through the scriptures. There might be more, but these are some of them. There's asking prayer. This is the kind that when we ask God for specific things in our lives, things that we need. This is seen in 1 Samuel chapter 1, when uh, Hannah was desperate to have a baby, and so she prayed for one. A confession prayer, where we come to God and we lay our sins before him that we know we've committed. Psalm 51 is David's famous confession after sinning with Bathsheba and Uriah. Intimacy prayer found in Mark 1.35. This, of course, is Jesus all the time when he would just scamper off on his own and spend time with the Father to gain strength and encouragement and clarity on vision directions for the, his ministry. Uh, Thanksgiving, this is when we give thanks to God. That's the only purpose of prayer. That's First Samuel chapter 2. After Hannah receives her baby, she then gives thanks to God in, in a long, lengthy praise. I love Psalm 92, Thanksgiving can be done through music. It's a cool way for those of you who are musical to think about expressing your thanksgiving to God. There's the authority prayer. These are the kind of prayers where we don't ask, but we command things. Jesus did that. When you look at all the, the healings he did, he never once asked the Father to heal. He just said, Talitha kum, meaning get up, rise, be healed. And it was so. But today's focus is going to be intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. One that we're going to find here in First Timothy. So what is intercessory prayer? Intercessory prayer is when you approach God on behalf of another person or group to present their needs to him. So you recognize a need in someone else and you want to pray over those people's needs. 
It may be brought to your attention through them directly, or it might be something you see that they can't see, and so you want to pray for them. Your needs in intercessory prayer become secondary to the person's needs. So you put yourself aside and your needs for the benefit of the other. It can come with an emotional intensity because a lot of times when we intercede for people, it's over painful things. And so this intensity comes with an emotional cost to us. And so there's often tears accompanied by intercessory prayer or a great burden. It can be done individually, like what I mean, or corporately. So what I mean by individually is we, we, we just come to God. Let's say, for example, I see, you know, like um, that God has a need and I come to God and I pray for him as an individual. Or maybe the church knows that he has a need and so that we corporately pray for him as a group. And so in Luke 22, Jesus prays for Peter. He says, Peter, I'm going to pray that your faith not fail. Because he knew he was going to deny him. He's like, I want to pray for you. And I have been praying for you. Your faith will not fail. In Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter is at the forefront again. Uh, he's in prison. James has been executed. And so the church thinks Peter's head's coming off next. And so they corporately gather to intercede on behalf of Peter. Well, we are going to learn that today we are to intercede on behalf of our government and its leaders. And you might ask, why? The so what? We're going to uncover the so what and the why as we've preached this morning. But I want you just to stand with me. And why don't we read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, which is the word intercession, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Please be seated. So I want you to notice something in verse 1. In verse 1, notice that prayer is to be central to the activity of the church gathering. Prayer is to be central in the gathering of the church body. In verse 1, he says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving may be half of all men. Now, this is a really important thing to think about based on the context of 1 Timothy. Those of you who are familiar with the book, remember the context. What's going on? False teachers have come into the church and they're disturbing it. They're creating, uh, they're, they're teaching false doctrines, which is ultimately leading to people not following the Lord the way he desired. They were being disobedient in different ways because of the false teaching. And so Timothy is sent to correct the problems in the church. Now that's why in the book you see a huge emphasis on getting good leaders in place to make sure good Bible teaching was going on. But it's clear that even though that was a priority in, in um, Ephesus, prayer is also an importance in Ephesus. The fact that he says, first of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions be made on behalf of all men shows that prayer was to be part of the corporate service. That was the big, big part and parcel of it. Of course, this is to align themselves with Isaiah 56 and verse 7. 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, said Isaiah. That was God's instruction to him. And of course, Jesus prayed that in the turning of the temples, turning of the tables in the temple. So again, first and foremost, it is a requirement that God's people be a praying people, and it's integral, integral to the corporate setting. Notice then who are to be praying for. The prayers of God's people are to be inclusive of everyone. In verse 1, he says, pray for all men. And that's, uh, in our context, all mankind, all humanity. Now, the fact that Paul told Timothy to pray for all men suggests then that somehow the churches in Ephesus had become exclusive in terms of who they're praying for. If you're already praying for all people, there's no need to tell you to pray for all people. All there is is a need to affirm that you're doing a good job in praying for all people. But by the fact that he says pray for all men means they must have been exclusive in some kind of ways. And we know the context in which the, the uh, prayers were to be primarily offered. It was relationship into salvation for all people. That's clear in verse 4. It says that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. So the primary category in which prayers are to be for all men or all people was their salvation. Somehow the churches must have been choosing and picking who they deemed worthy to be prayed for in terms of God's mercy and grace. This spoke hugely to me in terms of application. The Lord has to speak to me first before he speaks to you. First of all, it reminds me that sometimes my prayers can be of selfish in nature. Selfish in nature. They're more like, please watch over me and my family, take care of my children, bless them, bless my wife, amen. Or maybe at best, please watch over some people in Genesis house, name their names and then amen. But what does Paul say? Andrew, your prayers have to go way beyond your church family. They have to go way beyond your own personal needs. You have to become an externally focused church. You gotta pray for all people. All people? Yeah, all people. Those that the Lord puts in your heart and puts you in contact with. Our prayers are to reach as far and wide as the mercy of God. Now, here's what's crazy. Even though I know this and I'll teach you this, I get caught in this trap. I seem to deem who are worthy and who are not worthy of prayer at times in my life. All I have to do is walk into Tim Hortons, A&W, Costco, and I can easily decide who I think should be prayed for and who shouldn't. Or who are my favorite people based on just outward external appearances. But that's not the heart of God, and that's not the heart of Paul. I forget who told me this, if it was John Shades or I read it in a book. But it changed my life in terms of um, how to approach people in the community. And I quote, people who often don't look like they're looking for God are looking for God. 
The people that you think aren't looking for God are often the ones looking for God. So I don't know who that is in your mind. Some some of you, it might be the tattooed guy. I mean, it's getting more popular now, but the the really tattooed guy, you know, with the ear piercings and the face piercings, definitely not going to talk to him about the gospel. Maybe it's your neighbor for whatever reason. Maybe it's the hockey coach. Maybe it's one of your colleagues at work who's really antagonistic towards Christianity and has made it known. All of us have a list of people in different circumstances that we believe are, should be excluded from God's mercy. But the message of Paul is we are to pray for all men. Here's the big one. Who's included in all men? The prayers of God's people are to include the government, the governing officials that rule our land. He says here, for the kings and all those who are in authority. For kings and all those who are in authority. Now, in their context, that makes sense to use the word kings and all those in authority because that would include the emperor, provincial governors, local magistrates, Roman soldiers, and so on. Our context, we don't really have kings. So the equivalent would be our prime minister, our provincial leaders, our mayors, our law enforcement, and so on. Now again, why would Paul feel the need to mention them specifically after mentioning all men? Because the church in Ephesus somehow definitely excluded people in government. Wouldn't be hard to see why. The Roman Empire wasn't exactly always known to be uh, the Christian people's favorite uh, ambassadors. Often they were enemies to God. Often they were the persecutor of the church. And so it would be easy for the believing church in Ephesus to say, you know what? Church and state are separated. Um, I only have one king. His name is Jesus. And so I'm out for praying for anybody who's so crooked, perverse, and can't even uphold God's standards for morality. And so Paul says, no, 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 hold on a second, guys. Let's pray for these people. And so, of course, he's correcting our attitude towards government as well. And I'll have more to say on that in a second. The question is, why are we to pray for them? What are we to ask God to do for to to do for and through the government? The answer is found in second half of verse two. He says, "You pray for them so that here's the purpose clause: we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity." So why should I pray for the government so that you will lead a quiet life in godliness and dignity? People who hold positions of power and influence have tremendous ability to affect change and set the trajectory of society, whether for good or for bad. If we start praying for leaders and government officials to receive the Lord, to be saved, to use our Christian terms, then what a great start in setting the trajectory 
in our society so that we can start to live lives that are peaceful and godly. If they are thinking with the mind of Christ, their moral principles and the policies they put in place are the same as Christ. His kingdom takes priority over the world's kingdom. Let's say, though, for example, they don't even become saved and salvation doesn't occur. Does that mean we stop praying? Not at all. Not at all. We have to remember that we can still pray for for non-followers of Jesus to still put good policy in place and act as good government as opposed to bad. Where do we get this from? Romans 13 and verse 1. In Romans 13, Paul gives instructions about government. What is the government's job under God's jurisdiction? He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted. And then those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. You want to be free from the fear of one in authority. Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant. And the SV says, minister for your good. Um, but it's cut off. But it basically goes on to say, if you do well, you don't have to worry about that. If you do bad, you'll have to worry about that. But God's government is a servant of his. It's an extension of his arm. An extension of his arm. So we are to pray for good government. Salvation, yes, but at the very least, good government. We pray that the government does its job properly. It is a government that upholds justice. Justice that falls under God's uh, definition of justice. And so we see in other places in the Bible, believers are told to pray for not for secular institutions. In Jeremiah 29, 7, the people of Israel are living in Babylon. Here's what he says about the, uh, the Israelites in Babylon. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will prosper. If you pray for it, you will prosper. Even if it doesn't go God's, if it, even if you don't know God itself, you can prosper. It's the same as the uh, same same principle as chapter two and verse two. You pray for those people in authority so that you may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. In Proverbs twenty nine two, he says this: When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice; when the wicked rule, the people groan. So. In the form of a question, does the government we live under affect the life we lead? The answer is yes. What's Paul's answer? If you want to lead a good life, you pray. You pray for them. Here's the application. And again, the Lord has to speak to me first before he speaks to you. How much time do you and I spend praying for the government? And its leaders. If God's people would spend more time praying 
and less time criticizing, we would have less to criticize. Say that again. If God's people would spend more time praying and less time criticizing, we would have less to criticize. If we want to live in a godly society, it will not come about by putting your hours into grumbling. Here's another crazy thought, but it's, it's, it, it has to be the application of verse two. What's one possible reason, according to Paul, while we, why someone may not have good government? Because we have not prayed. It's the only, that's the only um, implication of what he's saying here. There could be other reasons, but in terms of this verse, that's the implication. And so it's important for us to think about this. Don't put your hand up. But just in your mind, put your hand up. In the last three years, more time praying for Trudeau or grumbling about him? One final lesson. There's one final lesson that emerges, but it depends on how we interpret verse 3 and 4. Because I can't decide which Paul is trying to, um, which lesson he's trying to put forth as the main one, I'm going to present you with both options as to what he's saying in verse 3 and 4. And you have a brain, you have the Holy Spirit in you, you can think through this the way I had to think through this. So I'm going to give you two ways to look at verse 3 and 4. After he says in verse 2, we pray for kings and all those of authority so that you will lead a tranquil life. He then says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So what is the this referring to? What's the this? Because that's important for what the next lesson is going to be. So far, one option is the this is that God's will would be that the prayers be made on behalf of everyone for salvation, right? So he's linking it back to verse 1. I want treaties and prayers to be made on behalf of all men. This is good and acceptable in God our Savior who desires all men to be saved. So he's really excited about the church praying for everyone because hearts, God's heart is for everyone. That could be one option. Option two is the this is referring to the second half of two, God's good government. So what is, what is the this referring to? What does God think is acceptable and, and uh, great? The fact that we may have the option of leading a tranquil and godly life in all dignity. In other words, um, it's acceptable to God to live in tranquility or to live a godly life, meaning and that comes about through good government. Now, why would he care about that? Well, according to verse 4, it's because he desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of truth. And so the application and the implication would go something like this. Because good government is the will of God, under good government, and because he wants all men to be saved, it's under good government that the gospel could go forward. There'd be no hindrances to it. Because if you're, if you're going God's way as a government, you're going to promote gospel things. 
If you're, a ba- if you're a bad government, you're going to go against the gospel and the things that he wants. And so the gospel has, has gets, is persecution and different things, and there's less likelihood of a gospel going forward. Again, salvation comes through hearing, right? Which type of government facilitates this? According to this text, the answer is obvious. A good government would promote it, a bad would hinder. And so we have an example of this in Paul. In 1 Corinthians 16, chapter 16 and verse 7, Paul writes this, For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit, speaking to the Corinthians, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Then he says, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. I'm staying in Ephesus because a door has opened for me for effective work. And then he goes on to say, and there are many who oppose me. So what is Paul saying? I'm used to having the door closed, the door closed, the door closed. In different places I go, I get thrown out of synagogues, I get beaten in cities, I have to leave the middle of the night and get on ships and sail away. Like that's constant. But I recognize that right now, for whatever reason, in, in the land, in the city of Ephesus, there's an effective door open for me. I'm going to stay. I'm going to say the government's off of my back right now. I'm going to stay. And I'm going to preach and promote the gospel message. So again, this is really important for us application-wise. I think the reason we don't pray, I don't pray, is that we don't think our prayers will have any influence. Or we take the attitude that the government is outside of our control. But our prayers clearly have a great deal to do with the kind of government we live under much more than we've realized. I want to leave you with a three to four minute uh, audio clip of uh, Derek Prince, who uh, did a sermon um, on effective prayer. And he spoke about a political situation that could have formulated in Kenya if God's people hadn't laid their lives down in prayer. The second example I'm going to give you of history being shaped by prayer happened in the country of Kenya in East Africa in 1960 when I was serving there in educational work with African students and teachers. At that time, Kenya was scheduled to receive independence from the British empire within just a couple of years, and uh, the country had gone through a tremendous political crisis. The Mau emergency, which had torn the country in two, created enmity and suspicion, not only between blacks and whites, but between the different African tribes. Just at that time, the Belgian Congo to the west had received independence from Belgium and had immediately been plunged into bitter civil war. All the political experts predicted that Kenya would go the same way as the Belgian Congo, only worse. Now, in August of that year, I was one of the speakers at a Bible convention for African young people. The convention lasted a week, and we'd come to the closing night. And somehow the Spirit of God moved in in a rather sovereign and unique way. And at a certain point, I felt that we had tapped the resources of God's almightiness and that it was our responsibility to use them aright. So I went up to the platform and silenced the young people who were praying, and I challenged them to pray for their nation's future. I pointed out to them that 
Christians have a responsibility to pray for their government and that their country was facing a major crisis and that probably their prayers were the only thing that could save their country from disaster. Well, they united in prayer, and for about ten minutes, everybody, something like two or three hundred people, were just praying, laying hold of God, one of the most dramatic experiences I've ever been in. Then when they became silent, the young man, the young African who'd been standing beside me on the platform, quietly spoke to his fellow Africans and said, I want to tell you that while... We were praying. I had a vision. I saw a man on a red horse, and the horse was very fierce and very cruel, was coming toward Kenya from the east, and behind it were other red horses, also fierce and cruel. But he said, while we were praying, I saw these red horses turn around and move away from Kenya toward the north. And he said, as I was meditating on this, God spoke to me and said this, Only the supernatural power of the prayer of my people can turn away the troubles that are coming upon Kenya. Let me quote those words to you again. Only the supernatural power of the prayer of my people can turn away the troubles that are coming upon Kenya. Now, I cannot go in full length into the history of the years that followed, but I have to say that that vision granted to that young African was exactly fulfilled. About three or four years later, there was a serious communist attempt to move into Kenya and take the country over from the east. But it was foiled by the wise and prompt action of Jomo Kenyatta, the first president of Kenya, and uh, the communists never have made any real advance in Kenya. But they moved away to the north, occupied Somalia, and today Somalia is basically an armed communist camp. But from that time onwards until now, Kenya has been one of the most stable and progressive of more than 50 new African nations that have emerged on the continent since World War II. Certainly that was not what the political experts predicted. It was brought about by prayer, by concerted, corporate, believing prayer at a crisis in the nation's destiny. Ten minutes of prayer with 300 youth changed the outcome of Kenya's political climate. And those of you who watch the news faithfully, or used to watch it faithfully, <laughs> know that Somalia is one of the craziest and worst places in the world to live. So what are we to learn from today? Prayer is to be a central activity of the church gathering. Number two, the prayers of God's people are to be inclusive of everyone. Number three, the prayers of God's people are to regularly include their government. Number four, God's people are to pray for their governments in order that they may lead peaceful and godly lives. And 5A or B, depending on how you understand the verse 3 and 4, either God, Paul is saying it's God's will that the prayers be made on behalf of everyone for their salvation, or the point of 3 and 4 is that God's government is the will, good government is the will of God because it facilitates the preaching of the gospel. But you know what? 5A and B together are probably the right answer. Both. And for verses one and two would support both of those claims. So, why is this whole matter again? Back to the uh, community of Opatokes. So, we've been on a journey for about a year and six months trying to reestablish our place in Opatokes as a 
gospel-based church who cares about the salvation of everyone who lives here, for the morality of our community, the direction it's heading. You know, I don't know corporately how much time we've put into praying for Tanya Thorne, all of our council members, um, you know, different authority figures in place, school principals, all sorts of things. But I do know this, if we're going to make a change in being an externally focused church, this has to become a regular habit in this community, in our church community. I'm not talking once a month, once, a, once every year, if we're lucky. I'm talking like regularly. And I fully, 100% believe, based on the Word of God, that we can have an impact on how we change the trajectory of our community and people's openness to hearing the gospel truth. At the very least, put good policy in place that honors God so that we can live godly lives in tranquility and peacefulness. Thank you, Lord, for the conviction and the challenge that you give us. And uh, from now on, as we move forward as a people who are trying to carry out a vision to reach the community and become more externally focused, the kingdom of God extends beyond these walls that we will now walk in these new truths, and this will become a part of our practice and a part of our thinking. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak loudly to us if we start to cross that line. And um, yeah, we just uh, look forward to the future of what our prayers may bring. Right, we ask you to work within them and with them going forward. Thank you know?